Hi, I'm Shane Hurlbut, and I'm an ASC cinematographer. And my wife and I have created this incredible resource called the Filmmakers Academy. And we'd love for you to download and rate our app. If you're a filmmaker, do yourself a favor and download the Filmmakers Academy app today. It's available wherever you get your apps, most notably the App Store, Google Play, Amazon App Store, and the Roku Channel Store. The app includes everything on the platform for all access members and from content to community and coaching opportunities, everything you need to master your craft. So download the app. And this is the most important part. Be sure to rate it. Rating us really helps us spread the word and enhance our rankings in this dedicated app store. So if you love what we're doing, this is a way to show it. Together, let's take your career as a filmmaker to the next level. Welcome to Shane's Inner Circle Podcast with your hosts, Shane and Lydia. Hello, Inner Circle members, and welcome to episode 43 of our podcast series. We are so excited to have all of you listening and to tackle some really great questions. I think the questions that we have coming in now are just really exciting and keeping things fresh. All of the questions that we have on our podcast to us are great and we love answering them. But in particular, now every single question that we get is an extraordinary question. So keep them coming. We're very excited about it. And just to spend time with you, a few announcements that we have to make. Please remember about the meetups. We have the Inner Circle meetups. They are happening. We have the New York event coming up this month in February, and we have a lot of other ones on the books. I know Chicago's happening in March, and Atlanta is happening in March. So please remember to look in your area for an inner circle meetup. And if you haven't joined the regional groups and gotten to know the people, they're extraordinary people. Please take the time to do that. Okay, we are now moving on to the first question. Hi, Shane and Lydia. Thank you for all of the mentorship and guidance you continue to make available to us. Here's my question. How do we resist the pressure to be the cinematographer that owns a fortune in equipment? Most of the productions that post jobs online are looking to hire cinematographers that can bring tens of thousands of dollars worth of camera grip and lighting that they own for free. This is obviously at odds with selecting the right tool for the job to serve the story. Any advice would be appreciated. Best regards, Bill. All right. Hello, Inner Circle members, and uh, hello, Bill. So let's kind of get into this thing. This is something that's been kind of an extreme movement that has happened since the uh, DSLR revolution and where anyone can basically create a story and edit it in their garage and finish VFX work via After Effects and Adobe and immediately push that baby out into a theater near you. Once that happened, it was all about 
people providing gear and people coming along with gear as a director of photography. Or if you're a gaffer, you're coming around with your lights. And if you're a grip, you're coming around with your grip gear. So these are things, the gaffer and the grip thing has always been there. Even when I was a gaffer back in the day, I had my own, you know, I had a F-350 truck and I had tons of speed rail and speed rail pieces and parts and I had 4K PARs and 18Ks and all these different things that I bought when I was a gaffer. And so, you know, having a, a kit was something that, you know, you you did in that kind of a gaffer key grip uh, technical side. And then the camera assistants would always have their follow focuses, maybe some sticks and heads and, and you know, they'd have uh, cine tapes or, you know, very minimal AKS. And it was too expensive to buy all this film gear and maintain it and keep it up to uh, standards. So nobody bought like full Airy 435 or, or you know, Airy cam packages. None of that was, was uh, affordable because it was $450,000, $500,000, and then you had to have a technician that uh, could maintain it and make sure the movement was all oiled and all this stuff because it was much more mechanical than kind of uh, technology. But now with cameras so inexpensive and uh, also lighting coming down in price as well, it's really created this very kind of almost unsettling void in the business where if you don't have any gear, they're not going to consider you to get the job or that you are going to lose the job if somebody else had the gear and you would have to rent it. Well, that's pretty screwed up, I think, because, you know, formulating relationships within this business with your local rental house and your local camera house and grip and electric and and post all these things are really important for you to expand as an artist when it's only you and you control everything then you're hindered by whatever you can afford and by being able to go to a camera rental house and you're like you know what I'd love to rent this thing and and uh, I'd like to try these new sets of lenses that aren't my lenses and it expands your creativity and it's not just what's in your kit because what I always try to do is what is the job what is the story telling me to shoot what brush should I use and it shouldn't be necessarily the brush that happens to be in my pickup truck or the back of my Prius or in a van. So you have something to say about that, Lydia? I have something <laughs> huge to say as a non-cinematographer. Let's think about this just purely from the business standpoint, because this is this is what I would say. Part of your job is to educate producers and whoever is hiring you about Maybe why it's great that you don't own the gear because it's going to make you more objective or, you know, you're bringing relationships to the table that you wouldn't necessarily have 
if you own the gear that they were hiring you. So it should be about your skill set as a cinematographer. Exactly. First and foremost. And and this is a business angle to really keep in mind because, you know, I always kind of filter through all of the noise, if you will. And if somebody is saying to you, well, you know, I'd love to hire you, but, you know, you don't have a red XYZ camera or you don't have, you know, whatever camera for this job and we really need that gear so I can't. That to me is a huge red flag because they they definitely don't want the best talent for the job necessarily. They want the person that has the gear and they're putting gear before um, creativity. Exactly. And that's, I think that's the real, God, I, I just, this, it really, it really bums me out actually because, you know, I'm, as a cinematographer, I'm not selected because I have a ton of gear in my back pocket that I can bring on projects. I'm selected based on my work and my features and, and the look of those movies and and commercials and the sort. And so, your relationship with the director. I mean, there's so yeah, many factors. Yeah. So I think, you know, if you are in this predicament where you, you know, and it's very expensive to keep up with the Jones let's say, in regards to, you know, camera gear coming out uh, every four to six months with changing technology, and you have to basically scrap that camera and get a new one. So with this, I would see, let's say I was in a regional market, and I, I, I would try to first formulate a great relationship with the local camera rental house or whatever is the closest camera rental house to your location. And I would kind of ask for stellar deals that say what the type of jobs that you've been getting and and uh, have them put a package price together. And I would include that on the on your you know, a uh, rate card. So if they are calling you up and saying, and you put the gear that you have down, you have that package price of whether it's a red, uh, you know, weapon or a scarlet or a black magic or whatever uh, you're choosing to shoot with that you've made that deal with the local rental house and you get it for a really great price. You negotiate a deal, you come to them with, this is how much work I do per year. And you say, okay, I'm going to work 40, days and which what a work last year or 80 days or whatever it is. And you say, this is the package price. Can you give me a discount on it? And then that way I can include it in my profile. So when people call up, I have the latest camera gear that is out there. I have the latest lenses that's out there or whatever lens I actually want to shoot to do the job. You can offer up, you know, three, four, five different sets of lenses that you negotiate with the local rental house. And then you're able to also factor in maybe some grip and electric gear in there as well. So these are the kind of things, and you get this deal cracking. So it's a part of your rate and you take a little less uh, on your day rate to be able to keep this relationship going. And that relationship is going to formulate when you get a job where there's hardly any money at all and you ask them 
for a favor, to to uh, give you the gear for free. And as a loner, I mean, I play this card all the time in the movie business, uh, but it only works if you have a relationship and there's a loyalty and you bring them a lot of business and it really works in your favor. Let's just say that you hold your rate, but this package deal is a bunch of garbage. Okay. And everybody wants a package deal all in. So it's going to be you and your gear. Okay. But imagine tweaking the discussion with the production company to say, hey, this is me and this is my rate, but I have this house behind me. And what if that rental house has locations all over the world or has locations all over the US? So now you're not the one man band with the gear. You're the guy with the rental house behind you with multiple locations that can help them out. That's you know, ensuring the gear that is giving the latest and greatest. And what if on a tech scout, something happens at the last minute and you all of a sudden can't use your personally owned gear anymore and the director wants to totally change it up and go with something completely different because he heard about XYZ camera. I am telling you all, and I am not a cinematographer, but Owning gear is a depreciating asset with the exception of a certain pieces, lenses, right? But but owning gear is a trap. It is like crack cocaine. And it's like gambling. Everybody wants the best and the latest and the hippest and the hottest. And then you get into this, I'm selling. And, oh, my God, I didn't think to get that. Or why didn't I choose that lens? And it becomes all about the gear and not about your creativity as a cinematographer. Focusing on that, you get so caught up in the gear. It's the shiny object. So I know that you need to understand the gear is the tool for the job. And I get it. But I'm saying... I'm holding the space for all of you to keep creative, to be your best artistic self, to go to the rental house potentially and play with all sorts of different gear so that you can be the most educated, most creative individual in the room and nail the job. Sounds good. All right, let's go on to our next question. This one is love the inner circle. As many of Uh, Others have said the inner circle has been a great resource and has been such a blessing. It has helped me grow not only as a director, but as a producer, a DP, and an editor colorist. All right. Well, you you wear a lot of hats. Holy crap. Uh, My question is this. I've been working for a company and I've been doing majority of the lighting setups. We have a DP who, when I'm on set, lets me light the way I think something should be lit. I go on location scouts and create lighting setups for him and crew. During the shoots, I take control of all the lighting. What is the etiquette for putting those shots on my reel? I'm not the DP of the shoot, but seem to be doing all the lighting. Can I put the those shots on the on a DP reel, even though I'm not the DP on the shoot? They have my title as lighting specialist on call sheets. Any suggestion would be highly appreciated. Thanks. Okay, this is a be very careful, be very, very careful, <laughs> because... Your moves and your strategy here will impact your future a lot because what you don't want to do is use a title and build a reel unless you have done the work. And I understand that you're doing the lighting, 
But, um, and Shane has been down this road where he was lighting director, i.e. lighting specialist. So I'm going to let him explain his very specific experience. But I am just saying to you, um, you need to be very wise in your negotiation of this. Okay. So here's my suggestion to you. If this DP obviously is a a good friend of yours that has come in and uh, works for the company. I'm going to tell you my scenario and then you can extrapolate from that. So when I was a gaffer, I was known for a person that really knew how to light. And a lot of director slash cameramen during the music video days would get me on board because they knew I could light it up. And uh, really unique lighting. And and, uh, so one of those director cameramans was Kevin Kerslake. And Kevin and I had an amazing relationship starting in the early 90s. And we did all the grunge era. We did all Nirvana, Stone Temple Pilots, Smashing Pumpkins, Live, tons of of all these, uh, the grunge era of rock. And... I, you know, came to him when I was starting to, you know, my lighting, and then I started to operate B camera and all these things started to happen on his sets. And I went to him and I said, you know, Kevin, I would really like to start my director photography reel. Can I use these music videos where I've done, you know, all of the lighting and even some of the camera operation to use as my DP reel? And he said, absolutely. You know, what ones are you thinking about putting on there? And I described, okay, I wanted to put helmet on there. I wanted to put, you know, you know, this, oh God, Smashing Pumpkins I wanted to put on there. You know, there were all these different bands that I wanted to, um, to use. And he said, absolutely. Every single one of those, you were the, you were the, the genesis of the idea of the lighting. You operated B camera, if not a camera. So yes, go for it. So I think that's the relationship you want to feel out with this DP and just ask him, or her the question. And if they're cool with it, then I would go for it. Because when it's all said and done, you know, you're out there, you're doing the work, and uh, you should get the credit for it. And I think that as long as, you know, you're putting it on as you're real, as long as that director of photography is not going to come back and start talking shit about you and saying, you know, hey, he didn't shoot that. That was my stuff and blah, blah, blah. Then you're going to be fine. If that relationship is not so good, then and he can come in and stab you in the back, then it's something you want to walk away from. And this is where, just to reiterate, to protect yourself, um, I think about. So it's you know, really getting a a verbal sign off from this person just to make sure that they're okay with it. They could be very threatened and your talent could threaten them and, because now you're competing directly for their job, right? As a DP, 
So just be very wise and very cautious and know the relationship, have the discussion, really have an open discussion and say, look, man, you know, this is going to be going on my reel. And I, no, you ask them as a favor. You're like, you know, I'm building my director of photography reel. And, you know, recently we've been doing a lot of lighting setups where I've been doing a lot of it. And I was just wondering if it would be possible for me to use some of this on my, to really start my DP reel. You know, people are going to be very forthcoming with that. I mean, everyone wants, I mean, I am at the side where I want everyone to get a leg up and and really aspire uh, to, to be, you know, to fly. There are other people that don't like that, especially in smaller markets. Like I remember in Boston, I mean, my God, if I had stayed in Boston, I probably would be at, what am I, in 30 years in the business right now, I'd probably be like a best boy electric because the people that were the gaffers still haven't kicked off yet. <laughs> nice, Shane. But the, bo- the bottom line is, is that you really need to get in the headspace of the individual that you're asking the favor from. Get a verbal commitment and maybe even one an email like, hey, this is what we have agreed to and I'm going to be using XYZ spots just to have something in writing um, for my director of photography reel. And, you know, the more you can protect yourself based on the discussions that you've had, the better, because you don't want the person coming back and all of a sudden changing their mind and saying, oh, my God, you're stealing my stuff. And I never agreed to that. So I would really think about the ways to protect yourself um, in this discussion. And as I said, be very, very careful, because what is incredibly difficult to recover from is somebody attacking your moral character, uh, especially given today's uh, environment that we're in. So you really don't want to do anything or make assumptions. Okay. So that's all I have to say about that one. (laughs) Okay. Moving on to this is light meter and false color. Hi, Shane and Lydia. My question is about trusting your light meter versus your false color. This is actually a great question. And I think we've answered parts of this in the past, but this is a new take on it. So here we go. I try to use my meter as much as possible, even when shooting on digital sensors, because I think it never hurts to be as proficient as possible with all available tools. But sometimes I find when my image looks correctly exposed on the monitor and my waveform and false color all line up nicely, my incident meter reading can be quote unquote off as much as plus or minus a stop. I understand that the incident meter can only give me the broad strokes of correct exposure and can't take into account things like the color of the talent shirt that will affect my exposure. But I would love to understand more about the factors that determine my meter and my scopes giving different results. When you're shooting film, what are some of the mental gymnastics you do to not only meter the light, but then also take into account the contents of the frame and arrive at your final settings for a good exposure? Thank you, Tom. Tom, that's a really thoughtful, great question that I have no idea what the answer is. So here's Shane. (laughs) 
All right, Tom. No, this is a great question. So most of the meters right now are gauged on more of an ASA setting than they are the digital sensor. And even though like uh, the... Uh, Sakonic came out and you were supposed to match it to your digital sensor and you would do all these tests and shoot all these cards. I personally did 12 hours of that and I couldn't get the damn thing to work correctly. So we've been working on uh, lookup tables specifically. We haven't released them yet, but we're working on lookup tables that kind of even out the gamma curve to some extent. So uh, it meters. So if you set your meter at 800 ISO and you're shooting with a camera that's 800 ISO, it reads to 800 ISO. Right now, if I'm shooting on the red, I rate it at 400 uh, or 500 uh, ISO, and even when we're shooting 800. So that's kind of where the lookup tables I've done in the past have been, and it's always, you know, a stop over is where uh, my IRE, my false color is falling in. So I know I'm always on the mark. So you just alter your meter to that point. So um, I... You know, and so that's really been the only way I've been able to kind of get a handle on it. And, you know, the other day I was shooting this Burger King commercial that I've been releasing on Instagram and I got my monitors redone and it was like I had come off of just coming back from Italy and I was color correcting my film over there and I got back and these new monitors got calibrated. And I'm like, my God, these things just don't seem right. It just seems so black, everything too black, too black, too crushed. So I just, I go, give me my meter so I can just see if this is right. So I went out there and, you know, threw my meter to four or 500 ISO and checked it and I'm like, okay, what are we exposing the camera at? And they said a, a 2.8. And I said, okay, it's reading a, a 2.8 on my meter at 400 ISO. So I'm overexposing at a stop. Perfect. Okay, great. So then I was like, okay, shoot, these monitors are good. Cause I was like, my God, this photo chem went off the rails, you know? <laughs> and I was like, why is this so damn contrasty and black? I was trying to screw with my game curves and, you know, everything on the monitor. But then I ended up just uh, going with it and, and trusting this, uh, this calibration. But you're, that's the only way I've found it. And like I said, we're working on these lookup tables uh, specifically for the red weapon and the red monstro coming up that we will be able to, you know, give you something, a LUT that, that is more rated for the ISO rating. And I was in a test uh, about a month or so ago, and I was with the Monstro and the weapon side by side, and a I had the one of the lead technicians come down, 
from Red to talk to me about the whole Monstro and stuff. And there was there was something in the profile that the sensor is about a stop more sensitive than the weapon. So there's like a place where you can calibrate it to, you can put it at plus one or minus one or whatever in there, which I never knew you could do. And it kind of levels your platform and engages it so you can read with your light meter. So that was a, a unique takeaway. Again, I, if you're asking me to try and get into those menus and find that damn thing. I cannot remember, but it is there. And it's something that's dealing with like the legacy thing or so, I don't know. He did it so fast and then I wanted to try and do it again, but then he had to go. So, but it is in there and you're able to make these adjustments. So at least the red reads uh, accurately to your meter. And then, like I said, just set your meter at a different ISO. If you're constantly coming up with overexposing with your IRE level that looks really good on the monitor, you're constantly coming up a stop hot, then rate it at 400 ISO. And then that's, that's where you start. And then that way you can go and use your meter and it's as accurate as your false color and they marry up. Okay, two things. Uh, did we answer his question? I'm just verifying because this is not my world about oh, yeah, let me go. the oh, mental gymnastics. Yeah. <laughs> so the mental gymnastics on film, that's the, the last thing I wanted to go into. So when I was exposing film, we had many meters. So I had a light meter. I had a spot meter. And I had a color temperature meter and the light meter obviously did the incident. So I would measure that up to a face. I, I, you know, if, and I did most of the time a half stop to a stop overexpose. Of course it, it depended on the, the, the scene and everything. Nighttime, I'm underexposing it three stops. Daytime, I'm overexposing it a half a stop. You know, it's all about the ratios. But these mental gymnastics that you talk about is really like I would look in the frame, I would meter it. Then I would say, geez, there's something really hot in the background back there. I'd pull out my spot meter and I'd read the spot of light. And then if that was way too bright and it was going to blow out too bad, I mean, obviously film blows out so creamy and so nice, but if it was taking my eye away from the actor or from the scene in some way, then I'd want to take that down. And that was done basically with a spot meter. And uh, if the shirt was too hot, I would put double nets in there to take that down also via spot meter. Anything that's going to draw my eye away from from something, I'm going to be using my spot meter to kind of find out where it's at. A lot of times, you know, you'd blow windows and I want to make sure I can blow the window and not have detail. Well, that's eight stops. So if I want to blow a window totally out so I don't see anything out there, it's got to be at least eight stops over. And that's that's everything. Right. Even the darker areas uh, out that window have to be eight over. You know, there's times when you don't want to know where you are. And then there's times where you want to hold detail. So if you want to hold detail out that window, it's got to be four stops. 
you know, uh, was the ratio. Five and a half was really a cool blown out where you could kind of see some detail, but it was very, you know, I'd used it on drumline for there was a scene in the library where the sun was hitting all these trees and I made it five and a half over and it just looks so cool. It's like molten limbs and everything outside. And then inside is kind of semi silhouette. And, you know, these are the kind of things you can do with film that with, you know, digital, it's going to look very clippy and it doesn't bloom so nicely. I mean, the Alexa definitely handles the overexposure and the creaminess of overexposure very well, just because their sensor is so kind of soft to begin with. Uh, Red is much better, but it's still not where the Alexa is in regards to that roll off, the clip, how it just kind of still, it's rounded ever so slightly as it blows, but you should see the Alexa curve. It just rolls off before it uh, falls off the cliff. So it, but those are kind of the, the uh, exposures and the tools that I would use. Incident meter to be able to come in and read the key light, read, I would go back and read like the dark area. I'd read the fill leg. If there looked like there was something way in the dark that we needed to absolutely see, again, the spot meter would come out and I'd read that. If I was getting a 0.7 and I was shooting at a 2, okay, that's only 3 down. It could be darker. Or if I was shooting at a 4 and it was a 0.7, that's 5 stops under. You knew you weren't going to see any detail there. So it's like the latitude of film was like 5 stops in the under and about 8 in the over. So about 13 stops of latitude that you had. And that was kind of my mental state. Tom, I just wanted to say to you that uh, from a non-cinematographer standpoint, I think a lot of what Shane was talking about was really trusting his instinct and what he knew to be true in his education, but marrying that with how it looked on the day. And so I think that there's an intuition that we all have that we need to tap into. Um, so it's not so hard on specific levels, and I always do it this way, but really trusting yourself in that moment and based on what you're seeing, your eye, um, trusting your eyes, you, you know, have a lot more experience and then taking all of the information, all your meters, what you're seeing with your naked eye, with the cameras telling you all of that. Okay. So just trust your, trust your instinct too. All right, that does it for this episode. Just a few things before we leave you um, on this podcast episode. I want to really encourage people to have your friends and other Inner Circle members join. Part of my mission for this year is to expand the community in terms of the number of members, because it really give what makes us so special is that we have all levels of experience. And the the newbie people, the people just learning help to keep the experienced people sharp with the questions that they ask. And so I've heard some things, you know, um, where please keep the content, you know, higher level. We are addressing the most experienced humans always. 
okay? And we are throwing in a range of questions because you do have to remember, no matter what your level of experience, going back to these newbie questions, thinking about them again, just either solidifies something in your mind or makes you see something fresh and new. It doesn't matter how long you've been shooting. So I just want everybody in this circle to understand that we're not targeting one person over another. We are giving the entry-level filmmakers versus the the most experienced filmmakers the same amount of, of time and the same quality. And whatever the question is, it's a great question. So um, thank you so much. Please refer your friends. Tell people that we are here. If you like what we're doing, um, please let us know that. I never ask for anything, and I'm getting better about asking. So like us on Facebook. You know, let, let us know how we're doing. Give us feedback. Send an email. Send, you know, Anne or Shelly comments that you want me to hear. Email me directly. Facebook me. I'm very easy to get a hold of. Okay. Yes, this is your membership, and I cannot stress enough that we need feedback to continue to make this great and to make it uh, tailored to our thousands of members. And the more you comment, the more you're going to get back. And uh, there's places that you comment and they don't listen. Well, I just want you to know that I listen very much, and both Lydia and I are very committed to um, listening to all comments and taking those in and trying to ebb and flow and shape curricula so uh, everyone is getting the best from it. And just to just to note, please don't worry about hurting our feelings because we want this to be the best. Um, I've taken some really critical comments. And yes, they may be hard to read for me at times, but I know that when I listen to that and I really take it in, that person has a valid reason for why they're saying it. And it just makes us better. So give us the positive comments. Give us the negative comments. Give us any neutral comments that you have, but don't hold yourself back. Don't worry about hurting our feelings. And this is about the greatest community it can be. And we're open to having, you know, the the easy discussions and the hard discussions. And we love you all very much, just like a giant global family. So I'm going to end on that. Have a fabulous rest of your, your shooting month and we will be back with our next episode which is 44 okay goodbye everybody thank you take care bye bye if you're looking to challenge yourself if you're looking to become a better filmmaker as well as being mentored from 30 years of experience go to shanesinnercircle.com knowledge you can trust people that care That's exactly what happens in our loving global film community of shanesinnercircle.com. Hi, I'm Shane Hurlbut, and I'm an ASC cinematographer. And thanks for joining us for another episode of the Filmmakers Academy podcast. Take advantage of monthly virtual group mentorships, networking events, and new content released weekly by becoming a member today. Join today and get $20 off your first month by using the promo code FAPOD20. That is F-A-P-O-D-20. 
and join the number one resource for cinematographers, film crews, and do-it-all filmmakers.